G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. When you listen to media reports, you might get the impression that lots of things right now in the world are going very bad. When all eyes are on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and fears of the whole world being dragged into war. You've got the posturing of China and what some are saying is a new arms race as superpowers jostle for superiority. Well, meanwhile, here at home, our own leaders are grappling with our own defence security. Well, we've got the accompanying energy crisis, sending the cost of gas and electricity soaring. Inflation has triggered the fast rise in interest rates to put the brakes on an overheating economy, putting huge pressure on anyone who has a mortgage. And now a number of international banks have collapsed just these past few days. The flow-on effects into small business, increasing anxiety, homelessness and rising crime rates. Well, when things go pear-shaped, how do we get encouragement as a people who have faith in Christ? We're back today with one of our favourite authors, Bible teachers and futurists, Dr. Camille Majdali, who leads Teach All Nations, staying up late in his now homeland of the United Kingdom. Camille, a special welcome back to 2020. Good to be back, Neil, and God bless Australia. Hey, Camille, you heard my introduction there, and, you know, I almost feel uneasy even describing the things that we're all seeing in our headlines. And I know I have painted a doom and gloom picture. And this is the reality, though, isn't it, of what is being felt around the around the world right now? Neil, we could very well be living in the most challenging part of our lives, certainly in living memory, unless, of course, you consider World War Two. Worse than this, which in many ways it was. It's, it was an actual shooting war, killing millions of people. Or the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, which brought the Soviet Union and the United States to the brink of nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, these, these are very, very challenging times. And they could even be viewed as apocalyptic, depending on if you were a banker at Silicon Valley. Not a banker, a customer of Silicon Valley Bank. At the same time, we are in a place of unprecedented opportunity, and I think it is wise and prudent to view all this from the lens of Scripture, and particularly biblical prophecy. We'll get into some of this, and there might even be questions from listeners, but when we talk about our response, Camille, to doom and gloom, there's one thought that some might have of uh, just going and hiding away putting your head in the sand, uh, finding a cave and uh, <clears throat> waiting till everything passes over. Or well, you mentioned something very important uh, when you say the word opportunity. Um, there's two ways of looking at any crisis. 
Uh, is there a Christian way of looking at things, a doom and gloom or, or a time of opportunity? How do you feel about that? Well, as I've been sharing for a while now, we're in a time of the great end time shaking. This is spoken of in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, and Hebrews 12, 20. And it's actually couched as a promise in Hebrews. God promises one more time to shake the heavens as well as the earth. Now, the purpose of the shaking is to remove the temporal kingdoms, in other words, the kingdoms of this world, to make room for the imperishable, eternal, righteous kingdom of God. But there is a secondary purpose, not actually explicitly stated in Scripture, and that is to wake up the spiritually sleepy and to sober up the spiritually drunk. This is the mercies of God. In other words, to get people to start looking upward instead of looking inward or looking uh, horizontally, you know, at other people. We look to God. It's an opportunity for evangelism, of course, and it's an opportunity to draw closer to God and start doing what he wants for our lives rather than us doing what we want for ourselves. Camille, some people think that Bible prophecy is all about doom and gloom, and uh, you just bring a, a slight nuance to the way that we think about the Bible prophecy, because uh, all of those things, you know, were pestilence and wars and rumors of wars. Uh, we don't often think of an upside to that, but is there a is there a right or a better way of thinking about biblical prophecies than than the thought that some have that this is just all about doom and gloom? Sure, Neil. I've been sharing also with people the fact that prophecy is less about doom and gloom than it is more accurately described as a time of contrast. And the contrast is, you go to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. It talks about darkness covering the earth and gross darkness covering the people. So that's, that's the bad news. That's the doom and gloom. But it tells us in the first verse, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and God's glory has risen upon you. So the contrast is, the, the dark will be there and it will get darker but the light will get brighter. There will be a time of growing apostasy, and we're seeing that before our very eyes. Some of the things I'm reading about in the global church are rather concerning, but it will also be the time of the greatest revivals we've ever seen. And, you know, it's going to be a time of increased death and increased life concurrently, like the wheat and the tares growing side by side. So it's all very well, isn't it? When times are good and you say, as the darkness gets darker, the light gets brighter, people say, oh, that's a nice quaint way of talking about how the Bible interacts. But all of a sudden, we recognize that there is real heavy darkness that is upon much of the world. And when you mention the word revival... I can't help but think, and we've had a number of conversations of recent times about things that have been happening in places like the Asbury University campus in Kentucky in the United States, where a small town, uh, population around about five or 6,000, all of a sudden is inundated with 50,000 people looking to catch some sort of revival fire. 
And it's not the only place because uh, been hearing of little outbreaks of revival happening in different parts of the world. When you say revival, does that make what we might have been watching in Asbury something actually particularly important to take note of? Absolutely. Asbury is a bellwether, I believe, of things to come. It's interesting in that 50,000 that you mentioned, 200 universities were represented in that 50,000. This is rather significant because if you talk about the seven mountains of culture and influence, one of the keys is education. Part of the reason we're going through a cultural civil war is because cultural Marxism took over the educational system while we slept. We were very busy pursuing what they would call the American dream or pursuing our own personal goals or even as churches concerned with what happens within the four walls but not really looking beyond to see what is going on. We are called to be watchmen on the walls, to watch and to pray. And I might add before I forget, the commands of Scripture are clear. We will see all kinds of things with our eyes, but we are not to fear. Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars in Matthew 24, but what does he add? See that you be not troubled. What does Paul tell us in Philippians 4, 6? Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. It's an opportunity for us to die to the world and come alive in Christ rather than the common thing of the flesh of being alive to the world and dead to the things of God. When we talk about our response, Camille, doom and gloom happening all around, in actual fact, so many even listening to our conversation are feeling the bite of some of the things uh, that are with rising cost of living, those sorts of things. We talk about a Christian response, uh, opportunities, and not worrying about these things. How much of what we ought to anticipate as the good or the light increasing is about us, and how much is, do you think, about God and waiting for him, and is he waiting for us? Uh, how do you make sense of, you know, who's who's responsible here to make a move, or are we supposed to step out in faith? How do you see that? That's a great question. I actually think it's more God waiting for us to come to him to boldly approach the throne of grace then it's us, where's God? Why is he answering? Why are we in this situation? There are, it's interesting because it probably is explicable how we got into some of the situations we're in. I am a very firm believer in uh, the fact that God rules over the affairs of men. It tells us that in Daniel 2. We need to recognize God really is the sovereign and that we have to give account to him one day, and hopefully it'll be a very short audience with the Lord, where he just simply says to us when we meet, well done, good and faithful servant. But I actually think God is waiting for us. He's wanting to pour out his spirit. He promised it thousands of years ago. One last latter rain to plump up the crops and get it ready for a global harvest. That's, that's his will. And we need to not only recognize it's his will, but 
pursue him, saying, here I am, Lord, send me, or here I am, send the, the rivers of living water. I've come to the river to drink, so make sure I get there. And of course, part of spirit-filled living is not just coming to the river of the Holy Spirit to drink, but keep on drinking, Neil. <laughs> Helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 1-800-316-316. You can join in our conversation. You might have a question, a comment, or even a critique for the things we're talking about today, our special guest is Dr. Camille Majdali. He leads Teach All Nations. Talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Camille, let me just, it might seem like a diversion, but there's a connection here. Because if we're talking about the world reaching a low point, as you say, perhaps we've not been at a point like this since the Second World War. We're in a low point now. And the world is about to experience a global church service. Now, when I say that, some people might say, what are you talking about? Well, of course, the coronation of King Charles, which is coming up in May. This is very profound. Is this something you can align with the fact that things are really tough right now? Well, I'm glad you brought that subject up, Neil, because it is utterly fascinating. I'm not sure if people are aware that while there are other monarchies on the European continent, it's only the monarchy in Britain that still coronates its rulers. Coronation is really just another name for a biblical anointing service found, of course, in scripture like in 1 Samuel where Saul was anointed king and they said, God saved the king. David apparently was anointed three times, one by Samuel and one by Judah, and then the other time by Israel and Judah. And of course, Solomon had an interesting coronation. It was at the feet, or shall we say down below, at what is called the Gihon Springs, the only source of water in Jerusalem. And by that coronation service, God saved the king. He outwitted his rascally older half-brother Adonijah, who was trying to take his throne and his life from him. It's an anointing service. And the coronation oath, which is what the king is pledging to do, or in this case, or the monarch, is to uphold the laws of God and the gospel. Now, you can't get more Christian than that. And remember, it's not like the inauguration of a U.S. president conducted by a civil servant called the Chief Justice of the United States. It's conducted by an archbishop, in this case the Archbishop of Canterbury. So in a time of, shall we say, increasing secularism, seemingly out of the blue, for the first time in 70 years, we get to anoint a anointing service that will be witnessed, witnessed by hundreds of millions of people around the world. Now, it'll be interesting to see how much th they stick to the script of the coronation, but Buckingham Palace said it will uphold the traditions. There will possibly be some little innovations, like uh, Charles's anointing oil is animal cruelty-free, it's vegan. I didn't know there was any animals involved in anointing oil. I thought it was just olive oil with spices. <laughs> but other than that, it is 
going to be the same service they've been doing for practically a thousand years. It's a reminder to us that God really is on the throne. And I'm not talking about Charles's God or anything like that, but the crown in many ways does represent the sovereignty of God above politics. That's why uh, I think it's a wonderful thing they're still praying in Parliament because it's our political leaders acknowledging there's a higher power than us. As long as we know and continue to acknowledge a higher power above us, that brings some restraint to the excesses of fallen human nature, particularly human nature that is entrusted with worldly power. It's a significant event that will be happening, and it will be happening amongst the doom and gloom that we are talking about today that is unfolding around the world. More to say about the coronation coming, but we're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Sue in Kingston in Tasmania. Hi, Sue. Welcome. Oh, hi, Neil. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful conversation. But I think it's so easy for us to get caught up with doom and gloom. I struggle with it myself, living on my own. The thing that helps me enormously is keeping my eyes focused on Jesus and listening to your radio station, which I just feel so blessed by. But in recent time, I've been challenged by Numbers 6, where the, uh, the quote is, the Lord commanded Moses to tell Aaron and his sons to use the following words in blessing the people of Israel. May the Lord bless you and take care of you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favour and give you peace. And then that led me to thinking about Jesus and what Jesus has given us and the certainty of salvation and heaven and a life beyond this life that's far greater than what we suffer here on earth. And it's 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And it says, May the God who gives us peace make you holy in every way and keep your whole being, spirit, soul and body, free from every fault at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I won't continue to read that scripture other than to say because we've been given the Spirit through Jesus and there are still churches in this day and age who are not teaching the gospel truth, surely part of our mandate as followers of Jesus is to help call out the churches that keep their people trapped in the old covenant. Sue, you're making some pretty powerful points too and... uh I often think, uh, you know, sometimes it's a generalization to say that there are a lot of churches that don't have a teaching of the gospel. Some perhaps approach things a little bit differently, but really great points you're bringing out here. And we'll get to Camille's thoughts here on that ironic blessing and a way that we might be able to think about doom and gloom. Uh, Camille, your thoughts here for Sue? Well, I appreciate the exhortation the Bible verses from Numbers and First Thessalonians. And I think it's important that we encourage each other because that's what encouragement does. It instills courage. You don't need courage in good times. You need them in challenging times. But there's something about the challenging times that can bring out either the worst or the best 
in us. But I do see challenging times, and I don't hesitate to say this, as an opportunity for God to become everything in our life that we practice the principles of Psalm 91 that tells us that God is our refuge and fortress. He has a secret place for us. When you're in the secret place, you don't worry about anything. You are kept safe. I almost, I hesitate to use this term because of the secular connotation, but our dwelling in God is like a safe space. <laughs> Coming to his, his shadow and hiding under his wings is incredibly important. And there are scriptures that are amazing, like Psalm 46, that says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and the mountains carried in the midst of the sea. This is not just poetic license. This is a hardcore spiritual reality. Crisis is an opportunity to come to God. But I urge people, things could be a whole lot worse than what they are. But use this as an opportunity, both for yourself, but to encourage others to come boldly to the throne of grace. Sue, outstanding input. Thank you so much for calling through. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Now, just before we move on from something you said there, Camille, and uh, saying, you know, and almost apologetically uh, using that sort of secular terminology, safe space, because it means we're talking about people's mental health. And if God is a sanctuary, if he is our refuge, isn't this something that Christians ought to be very excited and happy to be able to talk about, that you can find a good place of sanctuary and mental health in the presence and power of God. It's a wonderful message for Christians to encourage each other and to also share with the world. But to be honest, Neil, we personally have to experience that peace that passes understanding that happens especially in challenging times, we have to be the first partakers. And I believe we can. I personally have experienced it many times. I'm not laid back like some Aussies are. <laughs> I, by nature, a worry ward. But I've learned that God is the source of all peace. In fact, that's one of Jesus's supreme titles. He is the Prince of Peace. He didn't come <laughs> to make us worry and fear. He came to cause us to be courageous and strong. Let's come back to the coronation for a few moments here, Camille, because you started to describe the significance of the anointing service that will happen and we'll probably all be watching it when King Charles goes through his coronation. And we can't help but think back to the things that happened in the anointing service of Queen Elizabeth II. Now, those sorts of things are traditions that are going to hold through into the coronation of King Charles. But what do you see as some of the significant things that we might be able to keep an eye out for when that coronation is coming? Well, great question. As has been mentioned, coronation simply means to crown, to crown the monarch. And, of course, they'll wear a very, very priceless physical crown, but it represents the intangible but very real, you know, shall we say, presence of God 
because, for example, there will be lots of scripture in the coronation service. <clears throat> it's rather impressive. I just reviewed the one from 1953. I was amazed how much scripture, how much Bible was being quoted at that point. But the other thing is the actual anointing part, which apart from the coronation oath, that anointing part is the central part. That is that is the invisible crown, the all too real crown, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. When Elizabeth II was anointed, that was the only part of the service that was not visible to the public, not just to the TV audience, but even to the people at the Abbey. She was under a canopy. All the regal robes were taken off and she was sitting in a simple white dress. And so the anointing was done privately in a pu very public service because it was considered so sacred. To me, as one that runs a ministry whose tagline is empowering through word and spirit, to have both the word as given at the coronation service and also the actual anointing representing the, the Holy Spirit coming upon the monarch to empower and give wisdom is very thrilling because bear in mind, Jesus says that we are in error or the Sadducees certainly were because they did not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Here is an opportunity before the whole world to celebrate both scripture and the anointing. And of course, anointing represents not just the Holy Spirit, it represents revival too. So to me, I think recovering our Christian heritage is very important. It's like redigging the wells that the Philistines have filled up. We can have a lot of wells in Australia that need to be redug. God had moved in the past, and we need to do it again. And to me, the coronation service is a reminder that the well is still there, the waters are still flowing, come down and drink. As you say, there is a coronation oath that is taken when the anointing service happens or during the entire coronation process. And from my memory, thinking back to those things that were being discussed at the passing of Queen Elizabeth II and people talking about the anointing and the coronation and the fact that from that time, it's almost as though Queen Elizabeth assumed a new level of maturity because she had made an oath and there was a lot of reflection on the fact that she was able to maintain the integrity of that oath through her entire reign. I'm wondering here, Camille, uh, King Charles, he'll likely take the same oath. Ought we expect something a little bit supernatural to happen with him? Because some people will say he has a little bit of a different past, a bit of a different take on some things. What are your thoughts about what might happen spiritually in a time when he takes an oath before God? Well, can a 74-year-old change? And in God, all things are possible. I <laughs> would suspect that Charles will be like a new man. I'm not saying he will be totally transformed, but anything's possible. But you will see him, I believe, rise to the occasion, not because of him all on his own, but I believe there's something powerful about the whole office of the monarchy, the way it has transpired in Britain, 
And it's been a very dynamic monarchy because it has adapted in very good ways. It's not the monarchy that the American colonists broke away from in 1776. It's a whole, almost a whole different creature. It has become servant leadership. Under George III, the Americans saw him as an overbearing uh, absolutist monarch, but that's not the case. It is. I think Charles will grow into the role. And I'm saying it's just like our governor generals. They may have been politicians before they took the office, but once they're in that office, it is so compelling and so powerful, they behave themselves in an apolitical manner. If that can happen to a governor general with a term of, what, say, five years, <laughs> how much more to a, a monarch that's there for the rest of his or her life? Camille, with the coronation coming, um, just taking us into some deeper waters here, because, as you said, the church is empowered to do the coronation. And while sometimes we think of what might be happening in other parts of the world and things people will talk about with a great reset and uh, sometimes a reflection on that being a move towards some level of Marxist socialism, when you've got something, the significance of the coronation, and it'll be viewed by the hundreds of millions around the world, and the church is doing the coronation, putting two and two together here, you've got this great reset, haven't you, as to how authority flows. Uh, it flows from God through the church, and it is passed on to this imprimatur that's given to the ruler. Now, given that the king is a uh, not necessarily the government, but he is still the king, there's something there in a reset of the way we think about how things work. Any thoughts from you around that? Well, it's interesting because today the monarch is politically neutral, but in some ways I view it as the, the crown is the hub of the wheel. It may not in itself uh, seem to have that much influence, but it actually denies absolute power to all other branches of government, which brings balance of power and separation of power that is so essential for a stable democratic society. But what I forgot to mention, there'll be two crowns in this coronation. I think St. Edward's crown and the imperial state crown, which and they're both worth hundreds of millions of dollars, or in this case, pounds sterling. But the archbishop will tell the monarch, handing him a Bible and saying, this, not the crowns you're having on your head, but this Bible is the most valuable thing this world affords. I mean... That is going to be a message told to the whole world. And to me, this is a healthy reminder that there are some things in life beyond price, some things in life that actually are enduring. They're not here today, gone tomorrow. And one of them clearly is God's word. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What a healthy reminder we're going to have on the 6th of May of that glorious truth. And in one sense here, Camille, some might be thinking it's something that happens for us Aussies on the other side of the world, and it happens at an elite aristocratic level. It's way up high. 
how do I participate in something like that and glean some level of comfort and hope in a time of doom and gloom from something that happens like this? How do you think the symbolism of what happens in a coronation actually affects an individual who may not know all of these uh, wonderful, you know, insights that that you know that you're delivering today? People can actually appreciate that, but for ordinary people, how do you think they can appropriate some sort of power and encouragement from what's going to be happening at that coronation? Uh, that's a rather challenging question, but. Let me put it this way, and I mean, this is my educated guess, that it's kind of like when you go to the, the Tower of London, and within the Tower of London is a segment for the crown jewels. Now, I don't even wear a wedding ring. I don't, I'm not into any kind of jewelry. No, nothing personal, just a, a funny thing of mine. But I have to say, even I took notice when I saw those crown jewels, I still, to this day, and it was a long time ago, remember the dazzlingness of the diamonds and the rubies and other fine gems. It was, it was, and I'm, it was all within reach, so to speak. As you should well know, the British know how to put on a good party. The pageantry will be amazing. And all of it, I think, serves a very useful purpose. Because it is a big deal to have a monarch, a crown, the history, the heritage, the institutions that that crown represents. It is a good reminder for our identity purposes. And therefore, anybody watching that service, I don't think can help but be impressed that if this is how it's like on a normal human level with all the shall we say, celebration, there is even a greater glory in the new Jerusalem and the crowning of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's, it's like a little bit of a foretaste, an order, this, this shall we say, this coronation, an order of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we all look forward to. And I mean, for ministry purposes, it is a real goldmine what what illustrations we get from that coronation service that we can use in our preaching and our teaching to talk about a kingdom that is coming and will have no end. Pageantry that carries a message, God and crown, and as you say, just a foretaste of glory divine uh, when you think of uh, what will happen in that coronation service in heaven. Hey, uh, come back to uh, some of the challenges, the doom and gloom, and uh, nice to be talking about coronation, but uh, for just the remainder of our conversation here, Camille, back to things like alarmism. And uh, interestingly, uh, oftentimes, when times feel good, uh, it looks like Christians are being alarmist in talking about things that happen in the end of days. Right now, people will know that the alarmism is not coming from the Christians. It's coming around the climate scientists. It's coming around the pandemic alarmism. It's coming around natural disasters that we'll see on our screens or the wars and rumours of wars that are very, very obvious. When we're talking about alarmism uh, it's not coming from Christians. Is this significant, do you think? Because, you know, because now the shoe is on the other foot. The alarmism isn't coming from the believer talking about the prophecy. 
What we might be seeing is those prophecies being fulfilled and the alarmism of people calling out. What are your thoughts here? Okay, I'm a little unclear, Neil. Are we talk- Who's the alarmism coming from? The church or from the, the world? Well, what I'm saying is people often blame the church for alarmism because we talk about those things that happen in the last days. But these things that are happening now, the alarmism isn't coming from the Christians around climate or pandemic or all, all sorts of other things, oh. wars. Uh, so is that significant, do you think? I'm not 100% sure how significant it is, but I do know that alarmism can be horribly manipulated to create fear, to wield power, and to use that power uh, against people or to control people. That's why we don't want to capitulate to fear. The, The master alarmist, of course, is Satan. He would love to keep us on a knife's edge of worry and fear and fretting and anxiety. But uh, I believe this is where the church can shine so brightly in the midst of a dark night. After all, we are not just following the light of the world, we are called the light of the world ourselves, presumably because we are following the light of the world. And we're not to hide our light, the love of God, the fear of God, the victory in God, the peace of God. We're not to hide that under a bushel, we're to get to the high place to let it shine. So, yeah, there is a lot of alarmism, and yes, it's coming from secular sources and secular institutions and all the rest, but we don't have to tap dance to that tune. In fact, we must not, because if we do, we're going to be gripped and paralyzed by worry and fear, and that is the antithesis of what God wants, not just for his own people, but for all people. I mean, God... (laughs) is a loving Heavenly Father, and we in evangelism want to reconcile people with the Heavenly Father. So, yes, I believe there is a lot of alarmism, and we need to resist it, because that's not God's will to alarm us. It's Satan's will, and we don't want to capitulate to him one iota. Let's keep on with how we might deal with worry and fear and talking about those big things, you know, when revival breaks out in various places around the world or uh, the big things that you might anticipate even with the coronation of King Charles. But bringing that right back into the home, Camille, and uh, I couldn't help but pick up and every time I get uh, one of your email subscription newsletters. There's always a special little element in there that has nothing to do, I don't think, uh, with Scripture. But you like to include a favourite recipe uh, from your wonderful wife, Leanne. And uh, Leanne's recipe in your latest subscription newsletter uh, is about chicken soup. And I couldn't help but think uh, the chicken and sweet corn soup Some people align chicken soup with having special healing powers. Now, I did say this is a little bit separate. This is not necessarily a spiritual part of the conversation, except to say that hospitality that begins at home and uh, keeping an eye out for those who might be suffering worry and fear because they've been affected by things with this rising cost of living, rising mortgages, homelessness, all sorts of things. What are your thoughts for this sort of simple hospitality and uh, a recipe for chicken soup? (laughs) 
I'm not even sure where to begin. <laughs> I've been putting in a, I've been putting in recipes ever since I started years ago the Issachar teaching e-letter. I did it because I found that is a very popular topic. People love food. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just the ladies that love the food and and cook Men also. If that's not actually Leanne's recipe, it's right. mine. Okay, I like that, my that's apologies. a little hobby. I assumed <laughs> that Leanne, being a woman of wonderful taste and talent, uh, that might have been her recipe. But okay, this is your recipe. That's good. Thank you for well, clarifying. I, I, I mean, I found, I found, I found it. I didn't, I, I didn't create it. I found it years ago. I'm not even sure where I found it from. But the point being is. Uh, Get people's minds off the heavy-duty stuff and get it on something that we can all agree upon, or in the case of chicken soup, warm up to, pardon the pun. And, yeah, there is, I believe, I actually do believe there is medicinal properties in chicken soup. Uh, I've been told the Chinese have several recipes for chicken soup with the medicinal emphasis to it. But uh, anytime I've even felt the least bit fluey, even just mildly so, and you take the chicken soup with a little bit of echinacea and zinc and whatever, and it is amazing. It just goes away. Literally, it goes away. In COVID, it, was, it did wonders, I think, too. So, look, I mean, it, it's just something different around a common interest, and that's food and eating, and also just it's just part of the service you know I, I remember having somebody actually contact me years ago because they liked the recipe i had for the the christmas turkey or something you know <laughs> uh i just wanted there is a side to life where we need to unwind and relax and that's why we have it there but the hospitality the other thing i'm from middle east background and middle easterners are renowned for their hospitality, where the guest becomes the king of the house, and nothing is too much trouble for them, and they are made to feel like a million dollars. Now, mind you, even in the Middle East, that has waned a bit, but it's still a reminder. We are called as Christians to be hospitable, no doubt about it, and if we are hospitable, we might be entertaining angels unaware. Abraham was certainly doing that in Genesis. The three came, and I tell you, he gave them a feast, a banquet. And he didn't, he didn't even eat with them. He just stood from afar and watched them dine. But from that point, he got onto the dialogue with God, being the prophetic man that Abraham was. He's actually called a prophet believe it or not, in Scripture. I think it's Genesis 20. And God didn't want to withhold from him what he's going to do. And then he shares with him about Sodom and Gomorrah. But it, it all seemingly started by a grand meal in the tradition of Middle Eastern hospitality. Well, a wonderful way to end our conversation. Uh, find someone who might be suffering some fear and anxiousness about what's going on with the doom and gloom and uh, start a conversation over a, a bowl of chicken soup or some way of being hospitable. Uh, Dr. Camille Majdali leads Teach All Nations. 
not a lot of time, Camille, but are you planning another uh, Teach All Nations Understanding the Times tour later this year? The answer is yes. And the month will be September. It'll be much shorter than usual, but it'll be September. That's the plan. And three states in September for that purpose. One of the things I want to highlight in this year's Understanding the Times is there is a place in God to have freedom from fear. Yes, we're going to look at the current events. Yes, we'll go behind the headlines, as we we often do. But I also want to put an emphasis how people in a practical way can position themselves to be in the no-fear zone. That's a term I coined, the no-fear zone. To buy a block of land and build a house in the no-fear zone, not just for their own sakes, but for the sake of their families and even for the sake of the community. Because if you can have some pillars of strength who are strong and courageous, they're going to be a help and a, a minister to many others in the process. So moving to the no-fear zone is something I want to highlight in the midst of understanding the times. So we will watch this space for an Understanding the Times tour later in the year. To connect with Dr. Camille Majdali, Teach All Nations website, tan.org.au. And I know that Camille is just back from his 42nd tour of Israel in the Middle East. Uh, you might want to check on, you could uh, be a part of one of his tours as well. Some more detail at tan.org.au. Also access uh, Camille's books and DVDs and uh, downloads, all sorts of things. Uh, some of his latest books, The Prophet from Babylon, Understanding the Book of Daniel. Today, tomorrow, understanding the present, ready for the future. Uh, or White Horse Coming, Seven Keys to Understanding the Book of Revelation. It's tan.org.au. Subscribe to his Issachar newsletter. And uh, the latest one has that uh, chicken soup recipe. Camille, thanks so much for staying up late. I know it's like uh, 3 o'clock in the morning where you are in the UK. I know listeners will appreciate that sacrifice you've made to be able to share your heart with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Neil. God bless Australia, and God bless you for the opportunity. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.